The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to, to support the show. But for now, welcome to, to the, the Legendarium. Yob Talks here is bringing up some stuff from Akala Beth, which Ryan, you've read. Congratulations. Yes, I have. I'm going to go look up the um, episode number and just refer you to that one because, yeah, I don't think we can get into this without a Silmarillion discussion and my elbow patches are in the shop right now. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to the Legendarium podcast and the continuation of our Lord of the Rings series. Today, we're discussing book four, that's the latter half of the two towers if you enjoy what we do here please tell your friends share our stuff on social media and leave a review like the listener last month who said that they appreciate and i quote the constructive breakdowns of our opinions and how we provide evidence to support them without interjecting random negativity and childish trashing of material so clearly that listener did not get to our first farseer episode uh which by the way ryan is where most of our negative reviews came from was that first Farseer oh, episode. I'm 100% sir. I, I have zero doubts about that. <laughs> anyway, I'm your host, Craig Hanks. And uh, well, uh, you know, across the interwebs, he, over there, he's slimier than Gollum in a forbidden pool, and he's just as likely to be eating raw fish. It's Ryan Bruckman. That's why I haven't bothered showering for the entire quarantine. Yikes. And if she ever tried to join the Gondorian Rangers, they'd kick her out for being way too peppy. It's Megan Smythe. Ra Ross, Sisman Bach, go Gondorians. You know, the Gondor- Gondorian Rangers does kind of sound like a like a football team or something. A little bit. You could easily do a Lord of the Rings high school edition of the different places and the Gondor <laughs> like that would legit work. Uh, I'd probably want to would, attend the new Numenor- you know, North Numenorians or whatever, but that would Yeah, be they would good. absolutely be the jocks. <laughs> All right. So today I, I don't think we have any other major housekeeping to go through. Of course, patreon.com slash legendarium. Go to Discord, go to uh, Reddit, go to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. But anyway, today we're talking about book four in uh, The Two Towers. So this is the latter half of The Two Towers. And uh, this is the part where we follow Frodo and Sam and Gollum, right? So we've we've split off. Uh, I've got a little... Uh, poetic recap for you guys as usual i will have you know i worked really really hard on this for like 20 minutes so as like anytime you preface with this i know you've put very little to minimal effort into something <laughs> there, well, i mean this is only like what 160 pages so that sounds about right to me we we are starting to get into uh, the, the quicker parts of the story for sure. Okay, so let's let's find out how much effort I put into this. There's only one way to, to see for sure. Our two hobbit heroes are stuck in the Emin Wheel, and Frodo knows Gollum is hot on his heel. He and Sam capture the malign little creature of whom literal duplicity is the defining feature. But two-faced or not, Gollum leads them true, and the creepy dead marshes he leads them into and through. They dodge the Black Riders, now on Winged Beast, and arrive at the Black Gate, along with armies from the south and the east. Not that way, says Gollum, there's a better secret path. So they take his advice and head south to avoid Sauron's wrath. On the way, they meet Faramir, the Gondorian ranger. He was the captain of the football team, by the way. Uh, He's tough, but he's wise and avoids the ring's danger. He warns them of Gollum, in whom Sam has never had much trust. It's become clear he's not free of the ring and its lust. 
They take their leave and sneak past the Wraith's awful tower, where Frodo's nearly overcome by the ring's terrible power. They, cl they climb the stairs, where Gollum nearly does the right thing, but instead takes them within reach of Shelob's deadly sting. They nearly get away, but she sticks Frodo in the neck, and now Sam must save him from orcs to continue their trek. There you go. For putting such little effort into it, that's one of your better se uh, sequences, I believe. You think so? I do, I do think so. All right, well, that's high praise coming from... Any praise coming from Ryan is uh, high praise, honestly. I've, I've learned to take what I can get from him. Uh, okay, so, Megan, like you said, this was a relatively short section, and that is kind of the nature of the Lord of the Rings. I, I haven't looked in a while, so I can't say for sure, but I'm pretty sure that every single book of the six is shorter than the last one. Uh, so book one is the longest in The Lord of the Rings, as far as I can remember. I'll, I'll have to double check on one versus two, but I'm pretty sure that's true. So yeah, it is. do you, um, how, how did you feel about the speed and the, uh, the, the pace at which we're telling the story here in, in, in book four? Did it feel fast to you? I think it gets faster as it goes along. That first chapter, The Taming of Smeagol, I personally think feels really long. But after that, it it clips right along. I read the whole thing in a week. Like, I I had no trouble getting through this one. Right. Ryan, what about you? So I, and I have to be really careful how I say this. <laughs> um, <laughs> Here we go. Just, just because if I say it wrong, it'll give a very wrong impression of this. The Sam and Frodo part portions of the adventure here are have always been the part that I'm least excited to get into. Uh, that's not to say that they're not exciting or that I'm not saying that they are boring or anything. I'm just saying as I think through the story, having read through it before and coming into this one, I'm always like, uh, this is this is kind of the part that I'm like, let's just get through right. it until I get into it. And then I get to the point where it's like, oh yeah, this interaction with Gollum is really fascinating to watch the, the trust build with him. And then we get to Faramir and it's like, oh yeah, here's a... Here's a new hero, and uh, this time around, I'm starting to notice other little details that I understand in a, a larger worldview. Things like, you know, the fallen king statue head, and uh, little things. Knowing that those are those are part of a bigger story that my first read through around, you just don't pay attention to. There's a lot of moments where it's like, okay, this is clearly part of a bigger story. The marshes, all of the dead in the marshes, um, be the you know the Tower of the Moon and uh, the the Teeth of Mordor all being like this is. This is a story in and of itself that beforehand I'm just like, great, I now know the name of the place, but this time I'm a little more invested into those pieces versus just the story of Frodo and yeah, Sam. No, I, that's, I, that's interesting because I'm, I'm the other way around where I love the story of Frodo and Sam. And this is one of my favorite sections, partly because in the second half, um, Sam really comes into his own. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later, but I'm, I'm kind of the opposite where I... I really like their relationship together and that we have this time to really get to know the two of them and see how they interact with Gollum and how it's so different, but how they take so much care for each other. Um, and Sam's Agreed. jealousy and Frodo's, you know, trying to balance them both, but also he has this weight on his shoulders. Yeah. And, and the weird thing is I, Sam is, I probably my favorite character in the story. So to have these sections be so to, to have that reticence in my, my mind as I enter those chapters seems odd to me, but that's that's the way. You it know, is. I think this is a good section to ask you this question, Ryan. Why is Sam your favorite character? 
uh, once I think, and I have to say this based on a, going through it again, having gone through once, uh, Sam, watching him from beginning to end, I feel like he has the largest character journey out of everybody in there, and his is based entirely out of uh, love and compassion, which is not normally the the trait that uh, is the most exciting in in a story. Uh, but in this one, where there's such a weight of evil hanging on the other side, to have someone who is motivated entirely out of just pure love and the way that he showcases that really makes him stand out because they have you have a lot of uh, other characteristics showcased. You have, you know, honor and duty and a lot of other pieces uh, through other characters. But Sam, to me, is is always been the uh, the showcase of compassion and love. That's why he ultimately is the one who is able to, you know, spoiler alert as we get further in there, help Frodo get to where they need to be because uh, it's because he has the ability to you to to be driven by love versus anything else, which the romantic in me says that that, you know, true love conquers all type thing, you know, whether it's romantic or not, it's the it is a driven uh, power to get them where they need to be here here. Uh, Megan, do you do you agree that Sam is the greatest of all time, or <laughs> who is? <laughs> let, let me put it this way: Who is your favorite character in the entire story? You can drift outside of book four if you want, but who is your most pleasurable to read for whatever oh, reason? Oh, it's Sam. It's Sam for sure. I actually have a uh, um, heading here in my notes that says, "I love to read Sam." Um, part of it is that he. He, like Ryan says, he is very motivated in, I'm trying to protect Mr. Frodo. I'm just trying to get him through this. Um, but I also, I just, I like, they'll, they'll have moments where Sam realizes they've been climbing down the Emin wheel and it's been her- horrible. And he realizes that he has rope. And he, he's like, well, if I don't deserve to be hung on the end of one as a warning to numbskulls, you're not <laughs> but a ninny hammer, Sam Gamgee. I just think he's fun to read. And he also... He does have just very pure intent, and he is one of those that is thrown into situations that he uh, he just finds out that he's a lot braver than he thinks he is, um, but he he stands strong through the whole thing. Yeah. I, so, I do think he's the greatest of all time. I did tell, <laughs> uh, oh, and now I can't think of the actor's name, Billy Boyd. I met him at a Salt Lake comic convention. And I told him at one point, I'm like, reading the book, Sam is my favorite character, but I watched the movies and it's Pippin because I feel like they really show Pippin's character arc a lot better in the movies. But yeah, I just love reading Sam. No, I totally agree. And I want to zero in on what you said about him being so much fun. I think Sam uh, gets a lot of credit for being, rightly so, for being, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, brave and loving and loyal and all the things that Ryan said. But uh, but I don't think he gets enough credit for being funny. And I think Tolkien wrote him really funny. And, and you need that at this point in yeah, the story. Yeah, that's that's right. Frodo's kind of descending into his his uh, darkest hours coming up here pretty soon. Um, but then we get the scene when... Sam, right before they get found by the rangers in Ithilien, and uh, Sam says... Uh, He's he's talking about Gollum. He says, "I think he'd try to throttle me first. Now we don't see to eye to eye. we don't see eye to eye, and he's not pleased with Sam. Oh no, precious, not pleased at all." 
Uh, <laughs> what a great line. Just the <laughs> casual mockery of Gollum is great. And then when uh, when they're found by the rangers and the four of them walk into the clearing and, you know, one of them says, what, what are these? These aren't orcs, are they? Are they elves? And then Faramir, we later find out it's Faramir, he walks in and he says, no, that's not elves. Elves do not walk in Athelion these days and elves are wondrous fair to look upon or so it is said. And Sam says, meaning we're not, I take you. Thank you kindly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he says what we're all thinking, exactly. what we'd like to say. It, this, so this is why I think everybody loves Sam so much is that that is, I, I, you never know how you would, uh, how you would react in a really high pressure situation. You know, four giants walk into a clearing, draw their swords and demand to know who you are. Um, you know, who knows what you would really do, but in a regular conversation, that's what you would say. And the reason people love yeah. Sam so much in part, I think is because he is the stand in for, he's the everyman of the story, especially of this half of the story, right? Uh, if we separate it from the, the rest of the fellowship, uh, that are off on their adventures, but Sam, so we've got Gollum obviously is not um super relatable <laughs> he's fascinating yeah. and he's a wonderful character uh and relatability is not the end-all be-all of what it means to be a great character uh and he's not that frodo similarly he is more relatable at the beginning of the story but as the story progresses he descends further and further within himself um and he's you know uh, getting more and more uh, corrupted by the ring and so we're left with sam and the the Point, well, it's not really a point of view in the way that we think of it now. It's not like uh, Tolkien is using point of view in the same way that like Robert Jordan did. did. Uh, but we do start to see things more and more from Sam's perspective as uh, part as book four goes. And that's why is because yeah. he, he is the most relatable for all of us. And that's why, because he, he says things like, oh, thanks a bunch. You, well, you mean to say excited. I'm not lovely, fair to look upon? Yeah. Well, and he gets excited about certain things that pop up because he's the one that's been studying the elves. And oh, my gosh, I get to see the elves. And wouldn't it be cool to see an oliphant? And then he sees one. And it's like the best moment of his life, <laughs> yeah. even though it's terrifying. Yeah, that's actually uh, I was I was reading something earlier about that as I was, I was trying to do a little bit of prep work for this, um, that one of the recurring themes in Lord of the Rings that happens um, that's it's done slightly differently now is realizing that our heroes can be surprised and shocked and awed by the world they live in. Mm -hmm. A lot of times our heroes, you know, especially the uh, characters like an Aragorn or whatever, who've, who've been there, who've done everything, they're not surprised by much anymore. And so you don't tend to get that a whole lot in the story. But uh, in this one going, especially from the perspective of hobbits um, and people finding hobbits and things like that is how often characters are surprised by the, their own world that they live in. Um, and I think that I think that's really interesting. I'd never even really contemplated that before mm -hmm. um, about these characters being surprised by the world. And then and again, reversing that out to us, like how often do you go out and do something or go somewhere to be shocked by your own world? Like I didn't even realize this was something that was here or that could be, you know, that could be done or that this sort of person existed. Like it's it's really it just it was interesting. To do me. you feel like we've lost that in our postmodern world? Somewhat, um, I would say it, part of the reason that is, is because of the uh, availability and the readily available information. 
that there's a chance you've probably seen or heard or scrolled past something that has clued you towards something. So it makes it rarer because like even some of these incredibly beautiful places in the world, you know, I, 20 years ago, you would have had to go out of your way to try and find a good photographer's shot of some of these things. Mm -hmm. But now you hop on Google and you're like, yeah, show me the uh, show me the subway slot canyon in southern Utah. It's a beautiful location, but it takes really not the easiest thing to get to. But now you can see a ton of different photos of it, you know, online and things like that. So, yeah, I, I do think that we have lost it a bit. Uh, but on the, the counterpoint to that is I think some of the things that still do shock us today um, are, are rarer and more valuable because of the fact that it's harder to shock us now. Yeah. And when I say shock us, I, I guess, yeah, I'm thinking of we can't you can get on your phone or your computer and you can open up Google Earth or whatever it's called nowadays. Uh, and and you can go anywhere and see anything at any time as far as, I, I guess I just mean there's nothing left that's unmapped. Um, and we've, if you turn on the TV enough or if you're educated enough, you've heard of just about every place out there, you know at least a little something about it. But I wonder if, I, you know, I, I wonder how valuable it is when we talk about, um, people say, uh, people say, I love to travel, you know, I love to get out and have new experiences. If this is what that means, like, I'm just looking for something that's new and different. And so some, somebody from Utah, where we're from, hops on a plane, you know, three planes and goes to Thailand or, they go to um, the Ivory Coast or they go to, to, you know, take your pick. They go somewhere that's just wildly different from what they're used to. And just in search of that feeling mm -hmm. that there's a wide world out there, that there are still things that can shock us. And, and sh shock might be the wrong word, but just surprise us and be interesting and delightful and all that stuff. Of course, in The Hobbit's well, case, even... it's not so much delightful <laughs> as it is terrifying and awful. Yeah, they, they go well, through I mean, a lot of bleak, bleak places. I was just saying that even experiencing things that you are slightly aware of, because Faramir is aware of halflings. They're not sure what it is there, but I mean, they know the term halfling. The first time they that they actually come across them, though, it's still a moment of a of, uh, bit of surprise and, and awe. Would you and look at that? Kind of what's, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's the other side of it, too, for us is, uh, you know, there may be things that come across our path that we have heard of, but, but the actual experiencing of them is still going to be something unique and different enough for you that it's worth going out for that experience or letting that come into your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let's get back into kind of the chronological storyline here. I want to go back to the very beginning of The Taming of Smeagol and the first few paragraphs. So they're working their way through Emin Wheel, and right now it's just Frodo and Sam. They haven't uh, met up with Gollum yet. And I want to point out um, how there's a, a little parallel here between Frodo and Aragorn. If you guys remember in book three, at the beginning of book three, uh, so the, the departure of Boromir, Aragorn is just, you know, uh, he's he's got his head between his hands and he's saying, I can't do anything right. Why does every decision I make turn out to be the wrong one? Uh, right. And then Frodo says on the second page of that first chapter, uh, he says, is it the will of the dark tower that steers us? All my choices have proved ill. 
I should have left the company long before, etc., etc. And uh, so he's having the same kind of doubts that Aragorn has. And uh, I think, you know, lucky for him, he's got a Sam to to hang out with him. But anyway, I I think they start in really similar places, which makes it uh, interesting to see the differences in uh, where Frodo and Aragorn have to go in their stories and where they end up going, uh, where Frodo is, um, he's given a terrible burden and, um, and is promised that if he gets to the end of it, that he'll save all of mankind from uh, the second darkness of Sauron. Uh, and, you know, he probably won't survive the attempt, but, uh, uh, you know, but please do this for us, please. Thank you. And then Aragorn is, he's also given a, ma- a major task. We need you to restore the monarchy in Gondor and Arnor. We need you to uh, restore the rule of the Numenorians in Middle-earth and usher in the age of men as the elves fade from Middle-earth. And if you do this, you're going to marry the, the super hot elf princess. You're going to get to live a long time as the king of Gondor and you're, your name is going to be known forever. And, you know, glory and praise be upon you for all time. Uh, you know, Frodo doesn't get any of that. Uh, at least he's not promised any of that. He just has to put his head down, take the ring into the worst place in the world, and, uh, and you know, thank you for your service. I think, though, for Frodo and Sam, they, there's, there's a little bit of them that thinks, I may not actually survive this. But Sam says at one point, you know, if we actually get through this, all I want to do is sleep. Like, seriously, I just want to sleep for days. <laughs> He talks about taking a nap so often during these chapters where he just is so tired the whole time. Because um, I can't imagine the kind of burden that that would put on someone to know that the whole fate of all of the different races is on your shoulders. Like, I, I live alone. I don't have a family. And I get to the point sometimes where I'm like, I am tired of making all the decisions all the time. I will be going out to dinner with some girlfriends and they're like, so where do you want to go? And it's my choice, apparently. And I'm just like, somebody else make a choice. And I can see where um, Aragorn and Frodo would want to kind of put off their choices to somebody else. But they are so big, like they know if it doesn't work out, it's on my head. So I have to make the choice. Right. That's a hard place for a person to be in. (laughs) I'll see. Um, Ryan, do you have any uh, bullet points that you want to go through, especially toward the beginning of these chapters? Uh, mainly as a setup, uh, for discussions further along the beginning here, uh, when they capture Gollum. Yeah. Um, there's a few little things that I, that kind of stood out a little bit different to me this time. Um, Gollum is hurt by all of the elf magic. The, like the rope burns him and like, uh, as, and a little bit later on as he's eating elf things like that, he is he is physically hurt by elf magic, things like that. Um, or at least he seems to be, I do wonder about that, but go on. It's, there's enough there that I'm willing to make that claim. I wouldn't, it wouldn't take a ton to talk me off of it, but that's for me, that's a big thing of, uh, Gollum and the amount of time that he's spent with the ring and the amount of corruption that he's got, because that's a big, for me, that's a big, uh, theme of this section is, getting visuals of the effect and the corruption caused by the darkness of Sauron here. We see it in the landscape. Um, 
we actually get a little bit of an odd juxtaposition when we come back to Faramir and then there, you know, we get the green back again after coming through the marshes and everything. Um, but the fact that Gollum has been so heavily corrupted by the ring and by the influence of Sauron that good magic is painful to him. Um, I think I, we've always kind of figured him as a villain, as a bad guy, right? That's naturally there. But I, I'm curious to see if you were to take this story further and you think about the weight that Frodo is carrying, could he get so corrupted that elf magic would start to hurt him as well? Hmm, interesting. I mean, he wears his elven cloak right up until the orcs capture him. Uh, so at least until the end of this book, he isn't there. Um, I would kind of expect it to take more time, right. but the, the, the juxtaposition of the two, uh, the good magic, bad magic setup here is, is evident in the interaction of Gollum and these items. Right. Um, I, okay. There. So and, here's where I wonder about... Uh, you know, whether these things actually physically hurt Gollum uh, or if it's a psychological thing, because uh, he, it, it, you could be right. I'm, I'm not saying that you're not right. Uh, you, you could be right on the money as far as good magic, bad magic. Um, but, for, uh, sorry, Gollum, after the Hobbit adventure, you know, with Bilbo and he goes, he leaves his cave and he needs to go find his precious and he's captured by the orcs and tortured. And then he's captured by the elves and imprisoned there and questioned by uh, Gandalf, etc. And uh, he feels like the elves have gravely mistreated him. And he hates the elves and everything about them for what they did to him. Uh, and so I wonder if there's a part of him that just doesn't want anything to do with elf stuff. And so when he feels the rope or he tastes the Lembus, he, um, I, it, it just makes me wonder if it's more psychological than actually physical, but I don't know. I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just presenting an alternative. I could see that because depending on how you read his discussion later on about yellow face, the sun, yeah. mm -hmm. his hatred of that, you know, is that psychological or is it a physical thing? Like I, I can see your argument there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Shall we address some listener stuff? Sure. Um, we've got Jack, Jack period, on Discord, who says, um, reading this, oh, you know what? I'm going to save this. Sorry, Jack. Hang in there. I'm going to get to this a little bit later because it's <laughs> toward the end of the, the, uh, the reading. Um, okay. Uh, before we get to that, I'll talk about Yobtalks. Yobtalks? I guess is the name, uh, has, has something to ask about Faramir. So Yabtox says the downfall of the civilization of men is linked to an obsession with death throughout Tolkien's work. Faramir mentions death was ever present because the Numenorians, uh, et hungered after endless life unchanging thoughts on the idea of mortality as a virtue. Um, Okay, so the downfall of, of the civilization of men is linked to an obsession with death throughout Tolkien's work. All right, so we're getting a little bit far afield because Yabtox here is bringing up some stuff from uh, Akalabeth, which, Ryan, you've read. Congratulations. 
Yes, I have. Um, but this is probably stuff where I, I believe we addressed this or we probably came pretty close to it in that episode. And so uh, if I go on our site, um, uh, uh, Kala Beth, I'm going to go look up the um, episode number and just refer you to that one because, uh, oh gosh, I need to find it now. Because, yeah, I don't think we can get into this without a Silmarillion discussion. And my elbow patches are in the shop right now. so. And I haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, the idea, I mean, this section does, I can't really necessarily speak to what Yogtox is wanting us to talk about in terms of the Numenorean drive for immortality, you know, or the elves, you know, they're not understanding, you know, they're needing to go away because they don't understand death the same way um i i do think that death is a very prominent piece in this section to discuss um mortality is a virtue uh, not sure like i said probably in in that previous discussion uh but i do think especially the fact that we go through the marshes of the dead uh the weight that they're carrying as they get through mortar like it's it is a recurring element of this section though um and the, there's a common it's it's a common in the great epics of having to pass through the the halls of the dead basically or you know at some point having to face death to get to the other side and i feel like that's what's happening in this segment is is our hobbits are having to go through that and i yeah i, I can't really speak to the question directly but i do think the theme around that is worth uh worth a nod. episode number 95 so, Yob Talks, Whoa. go to 95. That's uh, our episode on Akala Beth. And, uh, Isn't it going to suck if we didn't discuss it in there? And he's like, yeah, that, <laughs> you gave me nothing. So, okay, uh, here's what I'll say. Thanks for the download numbers. There are <laughs> there definitely are mentions about how uh, men are blessed with death um, and that, uh, that the elves, nobody knows what happens to men after they die. I'm talking about capital M men here, Megan. Sorry about that. No, um, that's fine. <laughs> so nobody knows what happens to men after they die. And the elves regard that as a blessing because they believe that that men go back to live with Eru Iluvatar after their death. And the elves are tied to the earth. And so there is some mention of that. But as far as the Lord of the Rings is concerned, um, in this story, I don't know that it's so much death as change. Uh, as the the kind of operative thing here. Uh, what a lot of these civilizations and peoples fear is death, or sorry, is not death as much as it is just change. Um, and so for, for men, that would be, we don't know what's going to happen after we die. There's some kind of change. We don't know what it is, and that terrifies us. And for elves, it's a similar thing. That's why... Uh, Galadriel and Elrond have their rings, uh, and the power of their rings is to maintain an unchanging land. Uh, and so that's why uh, Lothlorien is the way that it is, is because of the power of the, the Ring of Adamant in uh, staving off change in the realm of Lothlorien, etc., etc. So huh. there is a lot to be said about, um, uh, about the feudal nature of fighting against change and resisting it out of fear fear of the unknown so uh it, it is yob talks it's a very interesting thing and yes we've already spent about four minutes on it but i'm not sure if uh if we want to spend a ton more but this listener also asked 
why are people so obsessed with the idea that Faramir is that Faramir not attempting to take the ring is extraordinary and either makes the ring out to be less of a threat than it is or makes Faramir a bad character? He's in contact with the hobbits for less than 24 hours and never even sees the ring, if I remember correctly. You do remember correctly. He never sees the ring uh, that I recall. <laughs> now I'm wondering if I no. remember correctly. Yeah. He doesn't he ever. Doesn't. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they even quite talk about it. He's he, aware of Isildur of... Isildur's Bane, Bane. Isildur's Bane. Yeah. And but. I, I and he hints at it strongly enough that you can be pretty sure that he knows what it is, but he's well, Sam not Sam even... tells him at one point. Right. Oh, okay. Sam That's blurts right. it out. Oh, yeah, we have the ring. And then Frodo's horrified and, you know. <laughs> right. And Faramir's like, no, I suspected. It's fine. Right. I don't need to see it. I'm good. So, um, anyway, yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of anti-Faramir stuff lately, so I can't speak to people being obsessed with this being a, a you know a bad section of writing. Um, I don't find it to be so. I have a hard time with the. I have a hard time with the idea of them saying that he's a bad character. Yeah. Because of this, because that doesn't register with me at all. I mean, and it doesn't demean the ring even less because the first part of the thing is that he rejects the ring. Well, he never. He never puts himself in a position to take the ring. Yeah. You never see like that's it's really what is more the truth there. That doesn't make him a bad character. It makes him someone smart going, you know what? If my brother fell to this, then I should probably not even bother looking at it. Like, yeah. Well, and I look at it as Faramir is the second son. He wasn't raised to rule like he wasn't being groomed to, you know, you are going to take over as the steward of Gondor when I am gone. He's. I mean, he's the captain of Gondor, but he's not like the captain of Gondor. And he's also a little bit of a romantic. Um, he tells Frodo at one point, um, I, for myself, I'd like to see the white tree and flower again in the courts of the kings and the silver crown. Return. And he keeps talking about like this idealized world. But he even says at one point, I, I love that which they defend, but I don't really want to be in battle. I don't want to be a part of that. Like I wouldn't pick up the ring in order to like save everyone because that's just not in his nature that was never anything that he was interested in doing right um and i can kind of see it never from that written. point of view no he's a lover not a fighter <laughs> exactly <laughs> i mean have you seen david wenham look at that man <laughs> he's pretty handsome <laughs> uh i don't know if i have a ton that i want to say on this well, and I also, I'd like to point out, it's it's kind of easy to say, like, again, he's not in the presence of the ring for very long, like, not really long enough for it to tempt him all that much. But it's, I can see him, it's it's kind of easy to say, oh, this is what I would do in this situation. If you offered me the ring, I'd say no. It's a different thing if Frodo were actually to, like, offer it to him. There might be some kind of pause there. But I can see this being a little bit Faramir being like, no, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to have to deal with that. I know what it did to my brother, and I'm really depressed about that, but I, I don't want to go through that, like Ryan said. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so now, we, and we may come back to more Faramir stuff. We've got a few minutes, but I do want to go back to Jack's question because it's going to take us further down the story road here. Um, reading this, I wish that Minas Morgul and the Witch King of Angmar were further explored more than any other part of the book so far. Does the cast agree, or do they have their own things they would have preferred more exposition on? Uh, I think that's a good one. That's a good one to wish you had more of. Um, Minas Morgul. I, you know, I'm a sucker for 
bad guy stuff and the the spooky lair of the witch king and all that like i'm i'm a sucker for that but what about you guys uh i was gonna say i don't with the way the story is written unless there was someone there who could tell them this story i think it's okay that it's left out like it's not really necessary if there was somebody i mean if they were with gandalf and gandalf was like oh that's the witch king of angmar here's his history that's one thing but just to like plop it into the narrative at this point is not i i'm okay not having it there it'd be cool if they had it at some other point but i'm i'm okay with it not being there yeah ryan you know i'm i'm on board with the idea of yes i would have loved to have had this explored more um the absolutely terrifying sequence of having him having him come out as a horseman and pause and, and frodo feeling like he's being seen by him and you know reaching for the ring again and I was like, oh, this is a really good, great sequence. I'd love to see this army in preparation or to to see more of, of what's going on there. And, you know, quite frankly, I this is one of the more visually beautiful uh, sequences. And if we jump to the films for a second, like I, this one stands out to me a lot of mm-hmm. seeing that the, the dark, the blacks and the greens and everything here. I, I've I've always loved this, this, this portion here visually. The moment in the movies uh, that's, absolutely fantastic is the beacon from Minas Morgul right when the mm-hmm. they they do the whooshing sound and then they cut the sound entirely and then this giant column of light shoots up out of Minas Morgul and it's yeah I love that stuff and that is just ripped straight out of the book it's wonderful <laughs> they didn't they, mm-hmm. they, all they had to do was add a cool sound effect um so yeah it's a really nicely visually written portion of the book um yeah i I feel like to further talk about Jack's uh, point here, you know, wish we could have gotten more of it. I I agree, but I'm also really grateful that the Lord of the Rings is, I think, 387,000 words and not a bunch more than that. You know, I think uh, the Wheel of of Time is, what, 2.5 million, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. Like, that's... uh, And if, if Tolkien had written a story like that that's you know 10 15 books long um then he would have had time to explore that and you know maybe have one of the company get captured and you got to go rescue him out of minas morgul or something and so you get to walk around in the city for a little a little bit but uh i will take a more uh, and this is a funny thing to say about the lord of the rings but i will take a more tightly written story as we have it um, versus a giant, uh, you know, five, ten, fifteen book series that uh, yeah. that kept kept going. And that is, I do one think, of... to your point. What's that? You go ahead, Ryan. I do think, to your point, though, if you know, we've talked before about if the Lord of the Rings was written today, you know, everything here. I do think you would see the Lord of the Rings as a multi-book series much larger than it is Mm -hmm. now you know now and that might be something that would be explored uh going forward but it's not and uh you're right that's okay it'd be cool but it's okay yeah i mean we have so much other material and so it's like if you want it you can go get it from other places the appendices and the silmarillion and the unfinished tales and the history of middle earth and all that stuff you can go find the stuff um, but for the sake of this story, we didn't need to go to Minas Morgul. Ryan, I think you're right. That section when the when the Witch King rides past is just awesome. 
And it kind of gives us what we need to know about what would have been waiting in Minas Morgul anyway, uh, in just a couple short paragraphs. Uh, so I, yeah, I think he did a good job of giving us what we needed in that section. So, um, so let's talk about, oh, let's see, where do we want to go? Okay. The separated nature of the narratives. This is something that we talked about in the last episode, and we want to bring this up again. Uh, there are some who wish that uh, the Frodo and Sam chapters and the other Fellowship chapters were interwoven instead of separated into these separate books. And uh, I kind of want to talk about that now that we've had book three and book four and how you guys feel about it at this point. Because I'd say... For me, I'm really enjoying the fact that they are separated. I'm paying a lot more attention to it now, maybe than I did uh, on our previous read. Uh, but I really enjoy it in part because just of how wildly different both of these sections are in their pacing and their tone. It's actually, it's a really jarring shift at first, right? You go from, you've got Helm's Deep and you've got these mega heroes and mega villains. And then you go to a little character journey you've got a struggling hobbit and his two you know little hobbit companions and that's it for several chapters until you meet up with faramir it's just these three characters and it's slower and it's more um introverted and uh yeah it's it's more about the characters that are going through things than about the things themselves you know when you compare it to book three um and so I kind of feel like it would have messed with the book three stuff if you cut it, if you cut the book four stuff in with it and vice versa. I think that they're different enough that you would have run into that, that jarring feeling that you get when you start book four and have to like reset your brain to get into this different type of story. You would have had that constantly if you were switching back and forth. And I think that's why they had to mess with Faramir's character, which is one of the major complaints from the movies, is that Faramir's character in the movies is wildly different than how he's presented in the books, uh, his character and especially his actions. Um, And they had to do that, and they had to take the hobbits to Osgiliath and all this stuff that didn't happen because in jumping between those storylines in the movies the hobbits needed a big bad confrontation at some point to match what was happening tonally with the other characters in Helm's Deep so that when you cut between the two, it wasn't, um, uh, it it worked better, right? So as a movie, I I don't like what they did with Faramir, but as a movie, it works better than if they had tried to intercut a lot more than they did. Oh, I just talked a lot. Okay, somebody else talk. What do you guys think of this? Well, I'm. I want to know if um, I really want a visual timeline of all of the events, kind of laid out side by side as to when things happen. Because I actually am not opposed to the idea of intersplicing them. Because the one kind of counterpoint to what you're talking about there, that you know, you talked about the jarring of switching to yeah. book four and and the tone pace and everything here. Well, you've just spent a ton of time in another. Uh, sequence with a different tone and feel but if you broke that sequence into smaller bites you probably wouldn't be as deep into that feel as 
you are when you've just read through, you know, 200 pages or whatever it is right. of that, you know, 30 pages is easier to come out of and shift into another one than 150 pages of it. Um, I would, I would actually be interested to see if, you know, to see a spliced version of the two towers where each of the events happens sequentially, yeah. uh, timeline wise, because the, the ultimate climax of the two towers book four sequence is she loves lair so is that but i don't know if timeline wise that could pair up with helms Deep. it does not it doesn't. do they it does not like, it's when frodo and sam get to the black gate they they make a comment where they're sitting in front of the black gate and frodo starts thinking about gandalf and at that point uh the you know nebulous narrator says that gandalf and aragorn stood among the ruin of Isengard and strove with Saruman. So that's when they're talking, when Frodo's sitting in front of the Black Gate, that's when Aragorn and Gandalf are at Isengard talking with Saruman, and he throws down the, I can't think of what Palantir. it's called. The Palantir. the Palantir. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think because when, and, and here we get into um, the, the, uh, uh, intercut nature of them or the interlacing that we talked about last time um yeah the, and that's that's only 50 pages into frodo's story and like earlier another... than that when they're in the dead marshes uh twice uh a ring wraith flies over them and heads west and i was trying to figure out i was i was going back and looking at the timeline in the appendix to try to figure out what the ring rays were heading toward and mm -hmm. Gosh, now I'll have to look again because the first time it was it was heading west, and I figured it was going to investigate what in the world Saruman was doing attacking Rohan because I think he was attacking too early. Um, he was not following the plan that Sauron had in mind, and so Sauron was probably sending a ring wraith out to uh, go try to get Saruman in line. But then later, at the toward the end of the Dead Marsh's journey, there's a uh, another Nazgul who's heading west like a bat out of hell, uh, yeah. uh, flying with terrible speed. And I thought that was when Pippin was revealed in the Palantir, but maybe not. I'll have to go back and look it up. Right. Well, and the, if I'm trying to think from the movie timeline, like you were all were talking about, like the Witch King exiting from the gate of Mordor with all of those, like that is very, it's, that's one of the sequences I love in the movie because you can see where everybody is because everybody, can, wherever yeah. they are, can see that moment. And you see that Pippin and, and Gandalf are already in Minas Tirith. Minas Tirith and that hasn't happened yet at the end of, at the end of a, what is this book? The Two Towers. Right. So at the very so latest. to bring it all back. Book three ends no later than when Frodo and Sam arrive at the Black Gate, and that's like chapter three. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, you could splice in those first three chapters, but after that, you would have to create a separation again, timeline-wise. Otherwise, you will really screw up people. You'll you'll really screw up people's understanding of things if you try and do it. So it's actually not like you're not capable of doing it and keeping your timeline in, in, uh, intact. But I would still be okay if those three set chapters showcased earlier and I'd, i would read that just to see how that yeah, felt no i i totally see where you're coming from um i'd be idea. interested too i i don't uh yeah 
I don't know if I'm the one who has the courage to go and, uh, you know, <laughs> cut and paste uh, the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But <laughs> Let just go buy a cheap paperback copy. No, not that. Just start tearing and <laughs> glue them together. And, oh, uh, I think that's sacrilege in Craigland. Well, the thing is, I haven't counted lately, but I think I've got 20-something copies of the Lord of the Rings, and so I, I think I could find something to deface. That's okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, any anyway. PDFs, PDFs. Come on, we well, can make it work. I, I'm just not sure I have that kind of hubris. I have a lot, but maybe not that kind. Um, okay. So, speaking of the dead marshes, um, do you guys know where those bodies came from? So they're caught. They're don't. coming across the dead marshes, and uh, you know, as you know, if you've seen the movie, then you know there's uh, dead things, dead faces in the water. And Gollum says, "Watch out! You're gonna light little candles of your own." And in the movie, there's a great sequence in which Frodo falls into the pool and all that stuff. We don't have anything quite like that in the book, but Sam definitely falls into it and says, "Oh, you know, gross! There's dead bodies in here." And Gollum says, "Yes, there was a battle long ago. Men and elves and orcs, and they're all kind of lying side by side." So this passage, it's widely understood, is um, inspired by Tolkien's time in the trenches in World War I. Uh, have either of oh. you ever seen 1917? Yes. Did you see it, Megan? Ryan, did you see it? Yeah. I have not yet. I highly recommend it. I yeah. highly recommend that movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, Watch it on as big a screen as you can find. Yeah, with as good a sound as you can get. Um, yes. So at the beginning of that movie, they end up moving kind of away from the trenches, but the first third or so of that movie spends a lot of time in the trenches and they, uh, they're they crawling their way through no man's land and you get a real gruesome sense for just how disgusting that was and how... I mean, it was no man's land, and so you can't go out there and retrieve someone's dead body. And so there are all these uh, shell holes with bodies in the in the muck and in the water at the bottom of them. They have to uh, the the guy that's giving them directions to get through it says, uh, you know, go go until the hanged man and then turn right. And so they go out there. Yeah, there's a guy that got stuck in the barbed wire and they have to go past this body that's obviously been there for weeks, uh, et cetera. Anyway, so he has this horrific, awful experience of being in the trenches and seeing that kind of death around him and the the people that are just left to rot in the mud and the water. And uh, that made obviously quite an impression on him. And so the echo of the trenches is very apparent in the uh in the dead marshes that's the real world explanation for where the dead marshes came from in the in-world explanation is that this was the battle of daggerlad and that it's what as like isn't it it's the opening sequence of the film yes exactly so this was the last alliance of men oh. and elves against uh the dark lord so you have men and elves and dwarves and everybody's fighting against him and um uh, and so that great battle, there was so much death and destruction there kind of uh, north of the Black Gate. Uh, and they couldn't, there's there was such untold death and destruction for days and months that uh, not all these, these cursed bodies, right? These spirits, these representations or whatever are still stuck there in what became oh. the Dead Marshes. So there you go. I'm kind of curious because... 
I doing a little bit of reading. Um, there, the the marshes predate the battle, and I'm curious if because the good guys win in that battle, right? right? You know, Sauron, Sauron is defeated there, and normally our good guys take care of their dead, right? Like they will bury, they'll do something here. Um, but being the situation of where it is, where it's a marsh, and for how long, and everything here, you talk about that, like maybe bodies getting sucked. Because I, I would expect that after victory, they would try and take their dead with them. You know, maybe I, I would expect like, you know, this is a field of orcs or something like that, right. you know. But no, just the situation of the of it being a marsh and everything here, there could very much be corpses of, of the good uh, and those bodies trapped there as well, uh, leading to this haunted marsh. Um, I, I don't know. It, it, it was something that resonated with me just because we've had discussions in the past about how each side... Uh, takes care of their right. dead, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be burying them or yeah. doing whatever. And coming to this point, it was like, well, why wouldn't the good guys have taken care of their dead? And like, I think you kind of answered it for me there where it was, you know, it's probably that there was just the bodies got sucked into the mud. They got, you know, trampled and semi-buried and things like that. And so we've got all these people who have never had their, you know, last rites or whatever the term <laughs> might be. You know, So now they're kind yeah. of trapped trapped here well i could see a, a little bit that also being a result of isildur and the ring i mean i who knows how quickly or how slowly it would have changed him but if he had the ring mm-hmm. and he had stopped caring about that you know he was supposed to go to mount doom and throw it in and then he decided not to and went and did his own thing maybe he just left all the people where yeah, they were i don't think that's the case i don't think that okay. isildur was corrupted in that way that quickly the ring betrayed okay. him after a couple of years but anyway uh yeah I, that is possible but i think more likely there's a couple of things to consider first of all the battle went on for months and if it was anything like uh you know what we saw in world war one and by we i mean thankfully other people uh not me then it's possible that the fighting was just so intense for so long that they could not uh, retrieve all their dead the way that they would want to. And then the other thing to consider is that uh, these aren't actual bodies. Because um, it, right. it has been 3,000 years, right? So these aren't, right. These aren't actual bodies. I'm, I'm thinking of the, uh, you know, when Aragorn goes to the, the dead king under the mountain... Yeah, it, we're we're mm-hmm. going to get there in the next book, right? He goes to mm-hmm. visit them on on uh, the paths of the dead, and uh, so it's kind of a a curse situation, perhaps, where uh, these uh, these little lights in the dead marshes are the cursed remnant of these forces. I don't know, uh, but trap spirit, yeah, type thing, exactly. So, so this this leads me to another question here, and we can move on from this if we, you know, I know time's running short, but. This is one of those areas that I've I've had the question pop up in my mind. Once Sauron is defeated, what would still exist in this world of darkness? Like, what would still live there? And my question here was, would these marshes still be around after Sauron is defeated? And are they, would they still be haunted? Oh, good question. I don't know about being haunted. I will say, um, as, as you mentioned, the marshes predate the Battle of Daggerlad. They were already there, but the marshes expanded. Um, you know, just like the Fangorn Forest contracted in the time since the Second Age, the marshes expanded. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's probably as much a uh, 
uh, symbolic thing as anything, right? The, the stinking, festering marshland is the one that grows while the the wonderful forest with all the old trees is the one that dies. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if it would have broken any curse. I don't, as far as I know, it wasn't a curse of Sauron. And so I don't know if his defeat would have made any difference. It's a good question. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, we are running a little bit short on time, but do we want to talk about Shelob's lair and Gollum and his decision and uh, kind of Sam and his orcishness a little bit before we go? If we don't do it now, we have to do another episode, mini soda or something on that portion yes. because this needs to be that they need to be discussed. Yeah. Okay, so Ryan, why don't you take it away? Okay, just toss it right onto my lap. Great. <laughs> it's a it's a live grenade. Handle it. Uh, so Gollum's choice or Shelob's lair, which one do you want? Uh, let's do Gollum. I know they're kind of Gollum's connected. choice first. So um, I, Gollum's choice here, I actually, this is what part of the reason why I wanted to set up that piece earlier about Gollum being affected by things is he, he does have a nice little arc here that leads up to the choice here. And you can actually believe for a while that Gollum is turning good. Um, and it's not until after he is betrayed by Frodo that he breaks his servitude to the Master of the Ring and decides to take them through Shelob's lair, to, to take them this direction, that it, uh, you know, yeah. to, to make that happen. Um, and I really, it, it it's kind of heartbreaking to me um, that the reason for him to drive them there was Frodo trying to take care of him out of out of his own well-being, you know, trying to save him from being killed, but it's viewed as a betrayal. Right. And that it it breaks my heart. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful writing piece. It's it's well crafted to to uh, sit those two at odds with each other. That this betrayal is for your own good. Uh, that's it's a masterstroke. But yeah, and, and well, and the question yeah. is, is it actually a betrayal? Because uh, otherwise Gollum would be dead. I mean, Frodo's doing what he can to protect him, but it certainly appears to Gollum to be a betrayal. And uh, I, I think he is... I think you're right. He's trying. He's he's kind of trying to do the right thing. He's trying to let Smeagol win out uh, over Gollum. But uh, it it's, you know, a stiff breeze is going to blow that conscience over. and Well, and at the same time, Frodo knows that he needs Gollum to get to where he wants to go. Like, he can't get there on his own. He doesn't know where Gollum was going to take him. He doesn't know. He he definitely needs Gollum. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So no, it's, not, it's not entirely... Altruistic. Altruistic. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, and you, you watch that shift from... You know, at the beginning, Gollum is the the prisoner. Mm -hmm. You know, Frodo captures him, holds him at knife point. You know, at knife points. You know, threatens him, and then as things go on, they are forced to trust him more. So you watch you watch that build up, and more and more trust. I, I that word is not the most accurate for what's being done here, but that trust in him is built up repeatedly as he's allowed to disappear and reappear to bring things back, to scout ahead, mm -hmm. to do those things. Um, that then, so we realize every time he keeps coming back and he keeps helping him, you know, he brings him the hairs and, uh, you know, Gollum is getting more and more useful and more and more trust there so that this moment where basically 
each step they become more and more in uh they need him more and more every step mm -hmm. at this point there is no option for them to go ahead without him in my mind like right if he if they let him be killed then they don't know which direction to go they don't they, he's kind of told them about three different paths into mordor but they don't know what how to get through to there what's on the other side because it's a curtain you can't see to the other side they can't even figure it out um so it's the perfect time for this moment to happen in the story it it yeah, is extremely well written so at, as we get to that choice uh he's led them up the stairs of kirithongol and uh they are sleeping right before they head into shelob's lair the hobbits of course have no idea what awaits them and uh and Gollum sneaks off to go ahead to make his deal with Shelob. Um, and then he comes back and sees them sleeping and uh, kind of recognizes that I am just about to do a terrible thing to these hobbits who don't deserve it. You know, he doesn't much care for Sam, but uh, still, <laughs> it, it, these people do not He's deserve part of the what I'm about yeah. to do. And he almost turns back. And, he, you know, if... I think that it says something like if anybody could have seen him right then, they would have just seen an old sad hobbit um, kind of, you know, wondering how he got himself into this mess. And then Sam wakes up and the first thing he does, and this is, it's been built up so well up to this point where you totally believe that the first thing Sam would do is wake up and accuse him and mock him and, you know, ask him what he's doing, slinking off in the night and, you know, of course, we know that he has been up to no good, but as you say, Ryan, he's Sam has spent the last eight or nine chapters um, being a total jerk to Gollum, just an absolute jerk. Has no room in his heart for uh, mercy or forgiveness or or pity, um, and Gollum has spent those same chapters trying desperately to not be what he has been for the last you know hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And then we come to this point where they both are doing the thing that Tolkien has been setting up for the last eight chapters. And, and it's that it's sticking in the, with those characters that creates that change. Beautiful masterstroke of writing. It's probably the best moment in the Lord of the Rings as far as um, just, just wonderful, wonderful character work. Megan, you go <laughs> in our last oh, couple minutes Oh, you want me here. to go? Yeah, what okay, do you think of this uh, moment and the choice? It's so sad. Because um, Sam, he may have at the beginning had a moment where he could have trusted Gollum, but he's the one that sees Gollum kind of talking to himself saying, oh, do we want to do this? No, what's the pressure? You know, and so he just, after that moment, he can never trust him. And... I just think it's so fascinating that they get into Shelob's lair, they escape it magically, not magically, but they escape it, and um, <laughs> I don't know. Gollum, F the file Gollum grabs Sam. Magical. Like Gollum is the one to fight Sam, and it's just like, oh, I'm go this is going to happen, and so he has this, ep he has this physical fight with Sam. Or yeah, Gollum has this physical fight with Sam, and then Sam, you know, drives him off. And then he has to go fight Shelob. And then, you know, as we find out later, he's going to have to go and fight the orcs. And here is Sam. He's there to save his master and will do everything that he can. Finding strength in himself that he didn't know he had. 
and still beating himself up about it. Oh, Sam, if you're going to do the wrong thing, you always do the wrong thing. Um, I don't know. I just, these, these last three chapters of this section are possibly my favorite in the whole series because of the choices that Sam makes and how this all goes down. I just think it's, it's really cool. It's really beautifully written. It's heartbreaking and wonderful. Yeah. Sam is super self self-deprecating almost to an annoying degree sometimes. Yep. Um, but one of the things that I would point out with the Shelob thing, as you say, you know, strength that he didn't know he had. Right. And mm -hmm. it's strength that he doesn't have to, he never had to consider whether he had the strength to do that thing um, in part because he made the decision a long time ago. I think this might be where you and I talked about this on our previous Lord of the Rings series, Ryan, where when Shelob has got Frodo and Sam comes upon her and starts fighting her, he made the decision a long time ago to do anything to protect Frodo and to save Frodo. And so... It's that kind of um, uh, fortitude of character that Sam has that other characters don't. Frodo doesn't have it. Aragorn doesn't have it. Nobody else has it. Um, where he made a decision at the beginning of the story that I will protect, I will take care of Frodo, and that's it. That was the end of the decision. And so yep. when something horrible happened to him, he didn't have to then make a decision. What am I going to do? Oh, do I fight Shelob? Or do I run away and try to rescue him later? Um, he doesn't have to make that decision because he made it a long time ago. And mm -hmm. uh, and so he goes after him. Now, the bit with Shelob I, and, and Frodo's capture by the orcs, um, I think we'll probably want to talk about that a little bit more with book six because sure. the, the relevant piece of information here is that Sam thinks Frodo's dead, so he takes the ring. Right. He takes the ring and then Frodo is captured and carried off. And so now Sam has the ring and there will be a little bit more about that uh, coming up in book six. So what do you guys say we stick a pin in that until we get there? Sounds good. Okay, cool. Yep. Uh, well, I think we're at the end of our time anyway here. So uh, do you guys have any final thoughts? Anything last that you want to bring up? Any lightning round thoughts, Ryan or Megan? I just had a piece of writing that I thought was really beautifully written that I wanted to read. Please do. May I? Okay. It's when um, Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, they've left Faramir and they get to the crossroads. And the whole thing, like I said, they've been in a lot of bleak places and this continues to be bleak. And it says, Suddenly, caught by the level beams, Frodo saw the old king's head. It was laying rolled away by the roadside. Look, Sam, he cried, startled into speech. Look, the king has got a crown again. The eyes were hollow and the carven beard was broken, but about the high stern forehead there was a coronal, a coronal of silver and gold. A trailing plant with flowers like small white stars had bound itself across the brows as if in reverence for the fallen king, and in the crevices of his stony hair yellow stone crop gleamed. They cannot conquer forever, said Frodo, and then suddenly the brief glimpse was gone. The sun dipped and vanished, and as if the shuddering of a lamp, black night fell. I read that a couple of times when that came up. I just, I think it's really beautifully written. People yeah. ask if, if this writing is, po is poetic, and I really think it is. Ryan, any uh -huh. final thoughts? 
Um, I don't think I really have anything of, of value to. I, I think that's a really good place to finish us finish off. So. Um, okay. Well, I will. I will uh, counter that <laughs> by saying no. I just want to also mention where we're at in Tolkien's life and where the world is at. Um, when he's writing these chapters, uh, I already mentioned the inspiration from World War One, but as he's writing this, we're actually right in the middle of World War Two. So it's uh, April 1944 is when he is working on The Taming of Smeagol, The Passage of the Marshes, The Black Gate is Closed, and Of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. And uh, then he writes the later chapters in May of 1944. So uh, he personally is uh, at this point the Merton chair of, um, uh, no, sorry, he's the Rawlinson and Bosworth professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford. Um, and it's not until 1945 that he will become the Merton professor of English language and literature. So he is in the midst of, he, he's like at the height of his career at this point uh, or about to get there. And uh, the world is still, um, enmeshed in World War II. D-Day will come up in about a month or two after he writes these chapters for the first time. Uh, oh. So anyway, just to give you a little context. So there you go. I, I, just, I snuck it in right under the wire. Thanks everybody <laughs> for listening. Uh, and if you enjoy what we do, again, please support the show at patreon.com slash legendarium. Uh, visit us at thelegendarium.reddit.com and join us on Discord, etc., etc. We would love to see you there and get your comments and questions for books five and six of this. Uh, all right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Megan. I'll see you guys later. <laughs>